Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It's fantastic to be back, Paul. Our guest this week on the show for a special in-depth look at the federal budget uh, is Warren Hogan, who's a former uh, Treasury senior official and uh, also previously uh, chief economist at ANZ Bank. Warren, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. It's always a uh, good session. Yeah. Um, let's get straight into it. Warren, uh, you've written um, pretty extensively about uh, about the budget on on Business Insider, um, I think uh, I'll just start you off with this: uh, your summary, which is your three key takeaways from the budget. The economy is on a much stronger footing uh, than many thought. Um, federal government finances are in better shape than many thought, and basically the government has a better chance now of winning the next election than anybody was prepared to believe last week. Uh, can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. Well, look, I think in terms of the economy. We're uh, in a period of great uncertainty. There's a lot of views out there that the Australian economy is really limping along. It's not doing well enough. Um, And I think these budget numbers um, show that actually the Australian economy is performing pretty well. Specifically, the fact is, is that we're getting okay growth and the economy is delivering pretty strong revenues for the government. The, The outstanding feature of this budget, which we all got alerted to about two weeks ago, is the fact that government revenues are a lot stronger than expected. And you don't get the government getting big upside surprises on revenues in a weak economy uh, or even an economy that's limping along. So the income tax uh, situation is a lot better. And yes, there's some commodity-related higher company tax receipts coming through. But the really important feature of this is that personal income tax receipts are, are well up and that's all the result of strong employment growth. So I think this really should reinforce a message to the sort of the marketplace, business community, financial markets that, you know, the economy's not as bad as some people are betraying, you know. It's, we're not in a world of, you know, 3 4% real economic growth and sort of 2 3 inflation. We're in a, we're in a new world environment um, where what was once considered okay growth should be now considered good growth. And uh, I think that's what we're getting here. I think one of the... F- uh, fascinating aspects of this, uh, which you alluded to, is this change, um, very fundamental change in income tax receipts, uh, which has, um, has uh, I think as you put it, um, has reset the revenue base. Um, I, looking back to, uh, just going from memory, I think about February, we were looking at beats in income tax collection of only about $1.3 billion. Uh, but that is now looking to be far more, many multiples of that, uh, something like seven, eight billion dollars uh, uh, better than expected income tax receipts. And that is obviously from uh, this uh, surge in job creation uh, that, that, that we've had. So uh, let's break down what that means, right? So we've seen about 32, 35 billion dollars um, over the forward estimates improvement in the budget bottom line, uh, and they spent about ha- given about half of that back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about fourteen billion dollars uh, in the initial tranche of this uh, the income tax relief, and then most of the rest of it goes to uh, improving the budget bottom line, where to the point where we get to a surplus now in two years' time uh, at two point two billion dollars. So you pointing out that this resets the revenue base, uh, that effectively these are, because I think a lot of people will be wondering, are all these numbers real? Are they credible? Uh, And 
the fact that they're based on a lot of this growth in income tax receipts. Maybe you can explain why that changes the dynamic. Yeah, look, I mean, what we're worried about here, and I think what a lot of the commentators have already started to point out and will continue to, is that the government's been given a revenue windfall and it's gone and committed, well, half of it anyway, um, in the form of income tax cuts. And this, this sort of gives us sort of flashbacks to pre-GFC through the sort of commodity boom mark one where the government was you know, swimming in revenues because of the, the commodity boom and the income tax receipts that companies were producing, and then that obviously disappeared, you know, and that, that proved to be unsustainable. Now, if this was all about company tax receipts, then, you know, we, we, we would need to exercise some caution, or the government should exercise some caution. But of that 30-odd billion that you referred to in extra revenues over the, the Ford estimate period, the four years, um, about 14 billion of that, 13.6 or something, is actually in the form of personal income tax receipts, not uh, company tax receipts. Uh, company tax receipts are only about four, I think, something like that. So this isn't about the sort of the volatile company tax receipt situation. This is about more sticky personal income tax receipts. So the government's got a better labour market than it had anticipated. It's getting more income tax receipts because of that. And unless we have some sort of downturn in the economy, that's that's reset the base for income tax receipts. And given the government's forecast for the labour market, that'll continue to grow. So I think the fact that you know they've only committed half to, to tax cuts or new spending or whatever it is, and they've used the other half for budget repair is another sign of very sensible financial management. That, that, that is, they're not you know, going out and spending something that, that might just disappear. So one, the extra revenue, some of it looks very sticky, and two, you know, it's going to budget repair. So that's really sensible financial management, which is, you know, it's, it's really sad to say, but it's quite unusual from a government. <laughs> um, and I think it actually highlights one of the most pleasing elements of this budget for me is that this government is taking seriously that the Australian people want a government that looks after its finances, that wants that budget back in balance, that there's a real political value to them in this. Whereas the, the typical narrative is, Pre-election budget's all about tax cuts and new spending and trying to win voters that way. This government is, I believe, taking very, very seriously that they will get extra votes, you know, bearing in mind they're well behind in the polls and the election's within 12 months, probably within nine, but they are well behind in the polls and they are undertaking a commitment to repairing budgets. So I think that's a, a really strong um, element to this budget. So that there's this question, of course, you know, that this whole thing about, well this narrative that's out there in terms of political contemporary political strategy that there's an anger in the voter base and that you can uh, use that you can, if you are a lightning rod for that anger uh, you can use that to to secure power whereas what the coalition appears to be trying to do reading between the lines is is going well, look let's put forward a really steady, sensible plan it's going to take a while to implement it um, at least, um, you know, one more term in office to implement, implement most of it. And if they want to get all of it done, they need to win two elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and banking that the electorate's going to turn around and say, actually, yeah, I think um, this is, uh, we, we'll give you a, a, another, another crack at this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it certainly opens up um, the path for a very interesting political dynamic. And just as we're recording, actually, it's turned out that the, the High Court ruling today, um, the Labour senator resigning and uh, three other MPs um, have decided to fall on their swords as well. So there's going to be some, uh, uh, you know, another level of uh, some political chaos, uh, parliamentary chaos at least, uh, in Canada. 
Canberra for a little while. Um, but I think uh, certainly um, the budget, the government's going to uh, be working very hard um, over the, the next little while, Dave, to sell this to the electorate, and they'll need to be convinced. Uh, now, job creation has been a big part of um, the Scott Morrison getting to the position that he's in. We've had this rat, r- big, long run of beats on uh, on employment creation expectations. Starting to look a little bit weaker lately. Uh, what's your read on the, the run of jobs growth? I think it's just mean reverting. Uh, we had unprecedented jobs growth last year. Uh, I think it was double what the, uh, the Treasury's forecasts were for the, uh, the budget last year. Um, and that obviously flowed through to income tax receipts. So um, we've seen employment growth slow quite dramatically in the, uh, the past few months, both in trend terms and seasonally adjusted terms. Uh, but you look at the various Ford indicators, ANZ job ads, uh, I know uh, the AI groups uh, series, the, it all seems like there's going to be pretty solid growth in the uh, in the employment forecast moving forward. So I don't think there's going to be um, any ridiculously sharp still. I don't think it's just going to go back to what is more regarded to be trend job growth, uh, given the level of where economic growth is at the moment, which is around trend. So, but and then the, this all then flows through to the question of tightness in the labour market, which would give, which would lead to that wage inflation, which is so all important uh, to um, uh, a to people's um, pay packets. Uh, you know, the, 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 the sure there's some tax relief in there, but it does amount to about ten bucks a week. It'll come in a lump sum, five hundred and thirty bucks uh, for people who are able to avail of the the maximum amount. Um, that's thousand bucks if you're a couple um, on that um, uh, low middle uh, in that low middle wage, um, and you can avail of all of it. Uh, not unwelcome, um, you know, um, and you know, a thousand bucks certainly make a difference to an awful lot of people out there. But the big um, game changer would be an uptick in wages growth uh, across the economy. But we appear to be certainly, when you look at the global picture, what it takes to get wages going again uh, in advanced economies, uh, we're a long way off that level where you where you might see uh, really wage wage growth started starting to kick back into gear. Definitely. No, unemployment rate at the moment is 5.5%. Uh, full employment is regarded as being about 5% or maybe even probably a touch lower now, uh, given the evidence we've seen offshore. Um, a lot's going to depend on what happens with labour force participation. It's been very strong. It's grown. There's more people in the, in the labour force. That's adding supply. Demand has also been strong. So it's meant that it's taken longer to get unemployment lower. Um, Treasury's forecasts have it going down to 5.25%, the unemployment rate on next financial year. It's going to hold there for a couple of years, um, which is still above that full employment level. Uh, so how that's going to translate to a solid pickup in wages is difficult to reconcile just based on what we've seen recently. And I suppose that feeds into the political equation too, because you might get a little bit of tax relief next couple of years. Um, and say, imagine a scenario where the coalition does get back into office two years down, 18 months, two years down the track, people still aren't seeing um, the kind of uh, uptick in wages that they were expecting. They've been told this, sold this message about better times ahead that we, you know, we're going to provide relief to households, all that kind of thing. Um, but it's not happening, and you can kind of envision them being maybe back in a bit of a, a pickle there. Because um, Warren, I, I know you think that the, you noted that you think that all of those wage forecasts look they, they look reasonable. Yeah, look, they, I don't think they had any other choice. I mean, the, the way the Treasury and in fact many forecasters go about 
their work is to sort of say over the next few years we're going to go back to the average level. I mean, we, we really don't have much capacity to forecast out much more than a year. We can sort of you know, do all our work around the numbers here and now and bearing in mind the numbers here and now probably tell us about the economy three months ago, but that's that's really just a, a short-term thing. We The forecasting methodology that any major institution uses is on a three to five year basis is, is essentially the average and the average for wages is about three and a half and so look they didn't have a choice and and and, and i agree with david <clears throat> and i agree with just about all the commentators who have come out so far that that is the that is the weak point in the in the economic forecast but um i don't think we should you know we're seeing evidence in the u.s now that uh, wages are moving um admittedly with a very tight labor market um, and I think we can get wages lifting in this country. I think we're getting some, some, some very early signs of it, some so-called green shoots maybe, uh, to use that term. Mm. Um, but we can get to three, and, and that won't be a big deal. The wage issue is actually what I believe is the other key political sort of um, spearhead here. You know, if, if, if it's an important political judgment that the Australian people want to see a balanced budget, the other issue is how does... How does the government deal with low wages? And as, as, you, as you referred to before, that lightning rod issue. Now, we can see very clear evidence in Europe and in the US that this disaffected working class, lower middle class group who have been sort of left behind with their low wages um, are voting away from the centre. And I think here in Australia, the, the Labor Party has made it quite clear in the last year or more that they're going to try and capture that disaffected voter um, with a shift to the left in their policy agenda. And so this is really important for the government to somehow blunt this message from the Labor Party that you know we have this sort of problem where there's, a, there's an inequality of outcomes, people are getting left behind and we've got to fix it. And to the government's credit, and this is because this is sort of part of the way I view the world, not that I'm a big supporter of the Liberal or the Labor Party, is that they are trying to resist this highly interventionist big government approach of labour, which I don't think is the solution. But the way they've done it is, yes, they've said the forecasts are going to go up, so you know, maybe people will believe that. But more importantly, the key focus of their new measures in this budget have been around low and middle income earners. So look, whether or not in the next term of government wages pick up or not, what matters politically is the next nine months, and that's the next election. That's all anyone really cares about, let's be <laughs> honest about it. And the government has got both these two judgments. You know, the Australian people want to see a, a good, good financial management. They want to see the budget back in order. And they also need to try and blunt this message coming from Bill Shorten and the Labor Party that, you know, the, the system isn't delivering for everyone and we've got to fundamentally change the way we go about things. And this budget, I think, is going to give them a good chance to do that. It's, and we're going to get a big contrast between the two parties. I mean, it's quite rare in this country that there is this strong contrast. And I, I got this sense that, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what Bill Shorten says in his budget reply. Um, but it's it's game on. We have got two very different approaches to dealing with the, the economic and social challenges that this country faces. And my sense is that in Australia... These socioeconomic issues about inequality and about people being left behind are far less acute than what we're seeing in the US and the UK. We are a much more inclusive society and... Better, stronger social safety net, I think. Yeah. All of those issues. Yeah, definitely. And so I think the Labor Party, there's going to be some nervous Nellies there if the government builds some momentum out of this budget because, you know, this isn't Trump and this isn't Brexit in this country. We haven't got that dire situation, so... Given the focus on wage growth, next Wednesday is the wage price index will be released for the uh, for the March quarter. And I think that will go and 
provide a lot of narrative and, and maybe see whether the, uh, the government's forecasts are on track to go and have that acceleration in wage growth. We've seen that, you know, Private sector wages are running at 1.9% or, or around that point at the moment. Uh, public sector is a bit, bit faster at uh, about 2.4. So all up 2.1. Uh, be very interesting to see what the quarterly reading is going to be and how that translates across because that might go and feed into that sentiment as to whether the budget forecasts are um, on the money or whether they may be that little bit too optimistic. I think uh, the to the point about the contrasts uh, uh, as well, the looking at this this budget and uh, where Scott Morrison is is, is taking uh, economic policy I was thinking about it yesterday evening and uh, sort sort of thinking that well, look um, it's like that scene from uh, uh, the life of Brian which is you know what are the Romans have ever ever done for us you know so Scott Morrison has delivered 140 billion dollars in tax cuts uh, done some things for aged care unrolled another you know well set out 25 billion dollars in infrastructure spending returned the budget to surplus a year earlier than expected but apart from all of that what has Scott Morrison mm. <laughs> done for the country and I think, for me, what's missing from the budget is what's missing from everything the Turnbull government does, which is this some kind of articulate vision for where the country is going. And the retort to that, obviously, is, well, you can't build anything uh, in terms of a vision without the economy being fundamentally sound. So, and I think I think Australians get that, and I think that's I think that's what we're going to see tested because the reality is whether the budget numbers are on a good footing or not, for the next nine months, they're the numbers and they look pretty good. And if Australians, you know, are, if that's important to Australians, we'll see that come through in the polls and we'll see that come through in some new momentum for the government. Yeah, that's right. And it really is, it, in some ways, it's kind of classic, you know, big government interventionist. Um, right, um, and then on the other side, you've got this, well, look, we'll provide the platform for people to go out and be successful. Yep. Um, and... Uh, will um, you know people can sort of do more what they want, and we'll give them more of their money back along the way. And the most explicit statement of that was the you know the twenty three point nine percent of GDP limit on government. What do you make opens. of this? Look, I mean, it, you never want to be too prescriptive with these sort of things. I mean, the whole point of good economic policy is is having good independent policymakers who can be pragmatic given the circumstances. So, you know, I, I think as a general idea, you know, you you probably want a bit of flexibility, but I think the risk we're seeing in 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 in, the, in this last decade, all around the world, and including in Australia, is governments are getting big and they're getting more involved in the economy than they have through that previous thirty years, where we had a lot of productivity, had a lot of wealth creation. So I think it, it's it's probably a, a, not not a bad thing to, to put out there. Um, politically, it's it's brilliant. It's exactly that message. It is we're going to limit how much we're going to extract from the private sector. And that's in stark contrast to what the other mob are saying. So I think um, politically it's, it's a very strong statement. Really interesting question out of all of this is for the overall economy. Um, on the consumption uh, side of the um, uh, this consumption element of growth, household consumption has been fragile. RBA talking about it as being a uh, on the source of uncertainty, possibly a risk, definitely, absolutely guaranteed if you had a pretty bad downturn in um, consumption growth would probably be in a lot of trouble. Maybe there is an arguably an economically responsible uh, element of the, um, what uh, Morrison is doing in put, trying to put some cash back into households, which would then be circulated back through the economy. 
uh, that that's there to try and lift that element or pro provide a little bit of support for it. Um, so a little bit of fiscal uh, stimulus. Um, uh, and But the big question will be, David, um, is it going to be enough to move the needle given the level of debt people have? Will they just stick it on the mortgage? Will they go out and spend it? Well, it comes down to whether the labour market continues to, uh, to strengthen. And uh, that's the question that everyone's asking. The, the Ford indicator suggests that it will continue to strengthen gradually. Um, but as you point out, we're very indebted as a, as a nation by our households. Uh, we have low income growth, and it's including low wage growth. So is there a possibility that households are going to go and spend aggressively in this sort of environment? Probably not. Uh, then you throw in the risk of this uh, Banking Royal Commission and what it could potentially do to uh, the credit availability in the private sector. And then that's another layer of uncertainty that we don't know what it could go end up uh, no, doing to the broader economy. So to me personally, I don't see consumption growth no, no, being absolutely stellar over the, uh, over the next couple of years. But that being said, as long as the labour market holds up, wage growth is reasonable, then I can't see there's a, a, a massive downturn in developing anytime soon. Yeah, look, I, I, I want to emphasise that I think, again, this, this, this economic strategy is really smart because there's two channels through which this budget is going to support the economy. So the first one is is that um, by getting government finances in order, bringing the surplus quicker and actually announcing these sort of you know, series of tax cuts throughout the, uh, throughout the next seven years, the, the government's effectively telling the Australian people we're, it's all back to normal operating environment, budget's back in balance, government's all fine, you don't need to worry about debt and deficits, so go out and spend. And there's actually not only some good theoretical underpinnings to this, such so things like Ricardian equivalents, which a lot of people debate about, but anyway, but there's actually some good data. And if you look at the correlation between government savings and household savings in this country in the last 20 years, it's negative 0.9. It's incredible. So when the government dis-saves, that is, it has big deficits, then households save and vice versa. So the government pulling back into balance and even into surplus is actually going to encourage households to save less and spend more. So there's that sort of channel, which I think is an expectations channel, and I think they're, 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 they're pulling that lever and I think it could give the economy a bit of a kick. The other one is that they're targeting all of these measures at effectively the vulnerable households, the lower middle income households. The Reserve Bank would basically be raising interest rates now if it was, wasn't scared to death that it was going to topple over the household sector with, with all this housing debt. And the big concern is that sort of lower middle income level, they have very little flexibility with their finances. The government's gone and shored a little bit of that up. Now, look, admittedly, the magnitudes of the numbers are not that great, and they certainly... <clears throat> You know, the kind of relief you're getting from the government's probably the equivalent of like half a rate hike or something. But, you know, the reality is, is that that vulnerable part of the economy is getting supported. And that's that big, broad consumption base. So, look, I think the government's, uh, the, the government's budgets is good economic policy. Uh, it's certainly, I think there's some amazing stabilisers uh, in, in the uh, Australian economy. Really interestingly, just reminded me that... Um, We've seen uh, um, some data um, here and there that shows that people feel better about the economy when the dollar strengthens. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so um, 
Whereas, you know, at a theoretical level, you know, there's all these things that, you know... Counterintuitive. Yeah, counterintuitive. So, you know, the dollar being lower should all of the things being equal... Well, right be, now we should be banning the, the news broadcast from putting the dollar up each night then because it certainly ain't looking too good right now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, it's only 11 months away. What are you talking about? It's perfectly fine. Um, which is something we should just quickly uh, touch on, I think. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here with David Scott and Warren Hogan. Uh, let's jump in just very quickly, global financial markets, which helps us talk about the, the, the global economic backdrop to the federal budget. Uh, Dave, US dollar still on a tear, um, to Warren's point, uh, hurting the Aussie. It is. Uh, more so, it's, I think, more the US dollar is strengthening rather than the Aussie is weakening. Uh, you see uh, emerging markets are coming under a lot of pressure recently. Uh, that's a big factor behind it. Commodity prices haven't really done too much. If you look at crude prices, they're actually at multi-year highs as we go to air. Uh, yeah, over 70 bucks now, both WTI and Brent. So that's absolutely flying. Uh, I still go back to what I was talking about in the podcast last week, which is you know, the US dollar, the technicals behind it. The, it broke out of a, a technical pattern and it's gone gangbusters over the last week or so. And I think it's just a flow-on effect. You've got the market still short US dollars, so there's a naturally bit of short covering coming through. Um, you're throwing the risk what's going on with that, with the emerging markets. The Aussie dollar tends to not perform very well in that environment, and we're seeing that right now. But it's not falling as dramatically against most of the major crosses. You look against the euro, the pound, uh, it's not done anywhere near as badly as, uh, as against the dollar. Should, there, should people be worried, or do you think there's any concern about uh, problems with, particularly in emerging markets, with US-denominated uh, debt, uh, not appreciating pretty rapidly in value? Uh, potentially causing some problems uh, in the emerging markets quarters. Well, as QT continues, quantitative tightening rather than easing uh, continues in the US. Naturally, it's going to get uh, you know, put up with pressure on, uh, on borrowing costs. People are borrowing in US dollar terms in emerging markets. No, that's going to flow through to them. So there's naturally going to be a bit of risk there. You look at what QE did to risk assets around the world during that era, when you start seeing this unwind coming out, you've got to expect that there's going to be a bit of that unwind as well in asset markets. Um, and we're starting to see that now. The, the economy now is in a much stronger footing globally. So that should go and limit the losses. But to say that, no, they'll be rosy and fine and they'll, they'll keep going onwards and upwards is probably a bit naive. Mm, I totally agree. I mean, I think this uh, removal of quantitative easing is, is going to be this slow and persistent sort of drain of liquidity from the world economy. And to David's point, it's happening against the backdrop of a strong economic outcomes. So um, it, it doesn't mean there's a crisis about to emerge, but what it does mean is it's, it's going to be a big headwind for, for all the beneficiaries of that liquidity, and whether it's domestic asset prices in the, in the advanced economies or it's emerging market liquidity. Um, there there's, can be little doubt that these markets are going to have, have a tough time of it. Can I ask you how you see the general global picture at the moment? Because this theme we've had probably for the last 12 months, synchronized global upswing that we've seen um, around the world, uh, advanced and emerging uh, economies. Um, it's been some signs of maybe a little bit of trouble in Europe lately. Um, always the uncertainty about what, what China's going to do and how it's managing its debt. Uh, and then you've got what's happening in the US with this huge amount of fiscal stimulus coming on, some inflationary uh, uh, pressure starting to build. 
Uh, how, do, how do you see the, the picture? Yeah, look, I think we, we, we're going to have a, another year at least of very good economic outcomes, particularly in a place like you know, the US in terms of the real economy. And uh, you know, we're going to get strong uh, labour market outcomes and you know, investment growth, that sort of thing. But asset markets are going to struggle because of this tightening up of liquidity. There's no doubt that the Fed will remain sort of focused on, on, on its plan. Um, is there some big crisis out there? Look, the... The crisis we've seen in, in, in the last you know, 20 years, emerging market crisis, domestic financial crisis, no, uh, we're not going to see that. But there's going to be challenges when you tighten liquidity conditions up. It, it, it brings out the weaknesses in the system, and I'm sure some will emerge. So I think, uh, I think it's going to be um, more challenging for the global economy on a sort of a two to three year basis because you know, we're going to see financial conditions, monetary conditions tighten right up. Uh, over the next couple of years, and, and, and that will start to create real headwinds to growth. Will there be a recession or something across it? I doubt it. Will there be sp- specific problems emerge in, say, an emerging market or in a particular sector in, in an economy? For sure. Argentina. Yeah. So yep. something will come up. And so really the, the, the golden era of, of, of asset market returns is, is, I think, over. I think, you know, you're looking at returns more in line with the underlying growth of the economy, which is something more like three to five percent. And and it's just going to be a, a harder slog for, for inv- investment markets and asset markets for the next couple of years. Um, so, Dave, what were uh, interest rates in Argentina last I looked? It was 40 percent. Oh, I can't keep up. They changed. Yeah. You're talking about 100 basis point. No multiple hundred basis point increases in a week, let alone a month or a year. So I couldn't actually go and give you the honest answer right now, but uh, they're obviously having a few struggles, uh, which is not uncommon for uh, for South America or Argentina specifically. Yeah, it's a pattern of behavior here, right? Uh, I think there was one day when they moved rates from 32.5% to 40%, uh, and that was the, 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 those decisions were 24 hours apart. Mm. So, you know, you can imagine the, the, you know, the scenario where the central bank comes out and we, this will never happen in Australia, touch wood. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the central bank at its meeting today decided to lift the um, the official rate by 675 basis yeah, points. Yeah, so, solidly going uh, to build confidence in the currency as well. You know, no, no better currency uh, and a shot on the arm. It's like, it's, oh, yeah, we're so desperate we're going to go and hike rates by 600 basis points overnight to go and uh, stabilise the currency. But, yeah, it's, uh, anyone who's out there, go and have a read-up. Just Google Argentina. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a multitude of, uh, of stories out there, including for Business Idol. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me tie this back uh, once again to, to the budget. Um, if we cast our mind uh, back to the hockey um, and Abbott-era budgets, Warren, one of the things that characterised that backdrop was uh, you had the theme was uh, China slowing down. This is about five years ago. Now, if you remember at the time, a lot of people were forecasting Chinese economic growth to fall to uh, 6% maybe five um, and, and that was a very very common you, you didn't sound uh, you sounded incredibly reasonable saying that that's where chi- um, the Chinese economy was going now at the same time uh, you saw this pattern in the Australian federal budget which was uh, repeated revenue write downs and misses uh, misses on revenue uh, and uh, downward revisions to um, the, the forward es- estimates um, as well as to the projection of the economic uh, fundamentals uh, looking forward. Um, so obviously this is really important 
um, for um, supporting uh, the position of the budget going forward, and probably any reasonable person would accept that there's, there's a limit to what a government can do to protect itself from that, apart from maybe make sure that there's a decent uh, the fiscal position is is strong enough to to to, to, to put a cushion there, um, but with the composition of economic activity as it is, and the composition of revenue as it is, and particularly this income uh, tax receipts forming a solid portion of this upswing, um, how do you see the buffers uh, that are in there uh, to help out if there is uh, some kind of uh, problem in the future? Yeah, well, look, I think I think we should always be ready for the fact that China is going to suddenly not grow anywhere near what it has been, and its demand for resources is not going to grow at what it has been. And that's just simply because they have had this massive rush of industrialization, but overhanging that is an aging population. They've got to get wealthy before they get old, and their natural rates of growth are miles below what they're, they're getting at the moment. And of course, to get them, they're putting a lot of risk into their financial system with the accumulation of a lot of debt. So I think we just basically need to be prepared that at any stage over the next five to 10 years, China's gonna slow down a lot. Um, now, the interesting thing about these upside surprises to revenue uh, in the budget was that it really had very little to do with China, maybe a little bit around commodities, but most of it was the domestic economy. And so really the, the strategic um, focus for this country needs to be, you know, how do we look to a future in the next five to 10 years where we're not as dependent on China as we have been for the last 15 years? And that's looking at other countries, other markets like ASEAN and India, but also it's about getting our domestic shop in order. So yes, getting our budget in order and making sure our economy is competitive and ready to have a domestic, vibrant investment scene and, and create the jobs of the future and all this sort of stuff. And I see that as all sort of happening. Um, look, I think China in the next little while is going to be fine. Um, uh, but I, you know, I, I don't think that global scene is the... Is, is, is a major player here. The government's expectations for the world economy are, are, are pretty much in line with the consensus. That is, it's going to slow down a little bit, but it's going to be okay. Um, so, look, I, I, I think the, the, the buffers are there. I mean, I'd like to see another 100 basis points on the RBA cash rate, um, a, a government budget that's in balance, and then I think we're, we're fit for purpose. You know, we can handle, we can handle shocks again. So, so that, um, this little bit, of, little bit of fiscal stimulus that's coming into the economy helps the RBA, doesn't it, with this whole mild tightening bias that it has? I think it does, yeah. Look, I mean, it's, it's, these are, this is going to be a small fiscal stimulus, and I, I don't think when you when you do the the numbers, the, the as I mentioned before, I think a, a rate hike would pretty much wipe out most of what the government's giving most households, but uh, or those that have a mortgage or that have a big mortgage. Um, but it does because the RBA cash rate is is too low. It's it's one and a half percent. Our economy, as the government's forecast shows, is, is nominal growth of sort of four to five, and you know. We're making way into excess capacity. The economy is going along. They should have that cash rate higher. We should be normalising policy. They're not because they're worried about doing really significant damage to the household sector. Um, and I think if we get another six to nine months of you know reasonable outcomes on on growth, the RBA will 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 start that process. They're, they're, I mean, I think they probably should get be getting started sooner. But their judgment is that they got to tread carefully. The other X factor here that's emerged is the Bank Royal Commission and all the noise about the supply of credit. And there's just, you know, there's lots of stories. I don't think we've got any hard data yet. And that's gonna add to caution on the RBA's part. You know, if they think the banks are gonna hold back a little bit um, more than they, than they otherwise would, then that would be another reason why the RBA would be cautious. But look, as I said before, I'd like to see the RBA cash rate 
you know, in this sort of environment that's been that both the RBA and the government are projecting for the next few years, be up at two and a half percent. I'd like to see the budget in order, and then we're, we're sort of back to you know we're, we're back to being into a, a fighting shape from a policy p- perspective, and we have buffers again. You know, if we get a shock or if the economy slows, we can cut rates, we can provide fiscal stimulus. You know, you go back a couple of years, and you know we didn't have we don't we don't have a lot of buffers, so we we need to rebuild them when we get the opportunity. Not many people look at it in that way. They don't look at economic policy in that sort of strategic frame. They look at it more by if you make an adjustment to the cash right now, what's it going to do to the economy? Which is obviously really important. That's the the politics of executing on policy, I suppose. But it would be nice to see that cash rate a little bit higher. So do you think they'll go early next year or at this stage, do you think the conditions will be right for a move early next year? Yeah, I, I reckon we're going to get an election at about the same time as uh, Steve Smith comes back into the Australian cricket team. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's going to make it pretty hard for the RBA board to uh, knock, a, knock a rate hike off in February. I know... Former Governor Glenn Stevens was more than happy to do a rate hike in an election campaign, but um, <laughs> I think it's best steered clear. I mean, if they if they've you know had a couple of years where they haven't felt that they needed to raise rates, deciding to deliver the first one you know four weeks before a federal election would probably <laughs> be a little bit uh, challenging. Look, the, I still don't think that you can rule out a November hike um, as long as the world economy and the domestic scene remains solid. Um, we've got to look at these wage numbers, the inflation numbers very closely. Um, but I think the most likely timing, if all goes broadly according to the, the, the plan, is in terms of de- getting decent growth is probably May next year after the election. Yeah. Um, but look, it's, it's, it's the bias. And I think you know, that this budget highlights the fact that it's the right bias. Dave, very quickly, uh, commodity prices, important factor. Uh, so they've gone for, uh, Treasury has gone for 55 US dollars a ton on iron ore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, Warren, taking on board your, your point that, you know, that um, obviously this is not as this, the budget is starting to look less uh, exposed to, um, to, to, to China, um, or the improvement at least is, is really the story here is about what's happening in the domestic economy. But there's some sensitivity analysis in the budget papers which talk about um, what would happen in various scenarios with commodity prices. And it, it, one of the things they spell out is that in, you know, a sustained uh, $10 drop in iron ore prices uh, two years out from now would have a $3.6 billion impact on the budget bottom line. That would be the surplus gone. Uh, so um, the surplus in, in, in two years and gone. nominal income growth and household income growth. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and the, well, obviously the dollar would be lower. Just so, but, um, so we're looking at where, where are our prices now, around 65 bucks? Yeah, a bit higher. Yeah. Bit high, but um, look, I'm the one thing that the government has done very well with forecasting in the last couple of years, in my opinion, is they've under under promised and over delivered uh, in terms of their, uh, their their commodity price forecast compared to what reality has been, and that's a big reason why you're seeing upgrades to the budget bond line, not downgrades. What we've seen over the past few years uh, by being cautiously optimistic on prices and actually predicting that prices will be lower where they currently sit has definitely gone and helped. Uh, and it has provided part of the upside that we saw in, the, in this financial year and what they're expecting in the next couple of years. So um, I really don't see a problem with them. Uh, you look at uh, mid-grade iron ore in particular, 
and high grades, it's going to be, you know, naturally supported by, you know, China's got this push to be more environmentally friendly, so more efficient ore, uh, more efficient, uh, you know, clean burning coal uh, is what they're favouring, and, and that's exactly what Australia has in abundance. So to say that, you know, even if Chinese steel production comes off a little bit, if the Chinese economy slows a little bit, I really cannot see that there's going to be too much of a marked fall in, uh, in our key commodity prices. So I think that, I uh, know they've done very well with what they've, uh, their assessments are. I think it's been a consistent feature of Morrison's budgets, to be honest. Uh, I don't think sometimes, I think he, he sells himself short or just doesn't do a very good o- a job of really explaining the story uh, uh, to, uh, in terms of what he's trying to do and, and uh, in terms of helping people. He seems you know, often very aggressive, selling the message, all of that kind of stuff. But when you look at the um, characteristics of his budgets, one of them has been to make sure that they're giving themselves a fighting chance of not having to write down revenue. Uh, be reasonable on the assumptions. I think the $55 for iron ore uh, prices was a, uh, that's been in there for a couple of years and mm. it has proved to be very sensible because uh, when you look at um, port inventories um, and the amount of speculation that's um, come, come into the market, you can now trade Dalian iron ore futures as of last week. Yeah, yeah. get involved. Yeah, so, um, so this um, iron ore markets have become a lot more volatile and a bit more unpredictable. So, uh, but by going for something like $55 a ton, it seems reasonable. Um, Chinese growth would would probably have to slow a little bit, or Chinese demand would have to slow fairly significantly to get it down to where it is. So it's a bit like what Ray Dalio says is, you know, their, their trading strategy at Bridgewater uh, is very effective trading strategy anywhere, uh, make sure that you really contain your risks to the downside and give yourself as much upside uh, as you possibly can. Okay, I'd agree with that. And I think the, the government should be applauded for its conservative forecasting approach. Um, it's been rewarded for it, um, particularly in this budget with getting these upside surprises on, on revenue. Um, and of course, the other thing it does is, is it's going to dull the criticism that the, you know, their economic forecasts are optimistic. And, and look, there's commentators out there who are talking about it. And as we discussed, the wages won. That's probably fair enough because I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that it's going to be a push to get wages up there. But the broader community probably that's not going to stick with them because the government has been very disciplined in the way it's gone about its framework. Um, so I think that's a good point to make. The, the Treasurer does highlight this fact, but, yeah, I don't I don't think it, it sticks. On that, I think, you know, you're seeing a very cohesive Treasurer-Prime Minister team here with this budget, which I think it's the most cohesive we've seen them, um, and that's really important. Um, Australian governments, when they're working well... Uh, the Treasurer and the Prime Minister are in lockstep and we've seen that for, for, for generations now and uh, this is the best we've seen uh, Treasurer Morrison and Prime Minister Turnbull operate hand in hand. So, Chris Kenny uh, wrote a column uh, which I thought was just finished uh, hilariously which was, you know, that they've, you know, they've got this together, it's a good policy, uh, they need to go out and sell it and can you imagine the impact if Tony Abbott got out there and fought for it too? Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't, uh, don't... Undo the good work. Yeah, um, we'll, see what, uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, okay, we're going to wrap up. Uh, Warren Hogan, um, Look, thank you very much for your time uh, and your insights. Great being ha- having you on the show again. Thank you very much. It's been uh, good fun. Uh, David, good to chat. Is it too early to start talking about um, Ireland versus Australia in the rugby yet in the winter tests? Still far too early. 
Okay. We've, got, we've got enough problems uh, in Australia without talking about the rugby. I think maybe next week we'll start with the build-up. Uh, you know, I just need to get permission uh, <laughs> um, to get excited about it. Okay, you've been listening to the Devils of Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I've been here with Warren Hogan, uh, Global Markets and Economics uh, Correspondent for Business Insider David Scott, and myself, Paul Colgan. Uh, the show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S, and you can find us all on Twitter individually too. We'll catch you next time.